Anisha Sinha's The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition, was published in 2016. About it, Eric Foner wrote, In emphasizing abolitionism's long historical trajectory, its international perspective, and its interracial character, Sinha situates her story firmly within the most up-to-date trends in historical writing, and with her extensive research and broad command of the era, she has produced a work of high originality and broad popular appeal. During my recent National Endowment for the Humanities program on Abolition and the Underground Railroad, I was given the honor of interviewing many of our presenters. Here is the first of a multi-part series, my conversation with Dr. Sinha. In reading the opening chapters of your book, The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition, I was very quickly struck by two key thoughts. The sheer amount of black resistance to slavery is dramatically underrepresented in history textbooks and most social studies classrooms. And the abolitionist movement was far richer and more diverse than I'd been led to believe. Uh, would you agree, first of all, that those are among the most important takeaways? Absolutely. I think those uh, that's a great question because that's exactly what I was trying to achieve in this book. Um, one was um, to really reimagine abolition as a radical interracial social movement that involved, you know, ordinary American citizens, black and white men and women, um, and not see them as these individualistic religious or moral reformers the way they're normally talked about in US history textbooks, even though there's a whole slew of books that has come out on abolition in the last few decades. Um, the second thing that I really wanted um, to do was to talk about um, exactly how African-Americans shaped that movement. You know, this image of abolitionists as these out of touch, northern white middle-class armchair philosophers is an image that Southerners first propounded of them. Uh, and it's like the lost cause mythology of the Civil War. They had this really caricatured view of abolitionists and one that was even accepted by Southern academic historians uh, who, who perpetuated these ideas about abolitionists. You know, there was an awful biography of John Brown by a historian who portrayed him as an insane horse thief. Uh, and that is the image of him that is in a, one of the foundational texts on the coming of the Civil War by David Potter, The Impending Crisis, which is a great book otherwise, but it has these caricatured uh, portraits of abolitionists. So I really did want to uh, talk about uh, abolitionists being steeped in abolitionist archives, um, looking at the material, because I quickly found out when I was writing the book that I couldn't trust the historiography. There were very few historians, you know, who were genuinely good about writing about abolition. And those are the ones who had actually studied abolitionist archives rather than repeat caricatured mm -hmm. generalizations. So people like Eileen Craditor, Lewis Perry, uh, even David Bryan Davis, who, who is very steeped in the material. I may not agree with all his interpretations, but, you know, he knew what he was talking about. Um, but my big beef is to get that image into the textbook. Uh, and I did that a little bit in Massachusetts. They have a curriculum 
that really systematically includes abolitionists. And I was very much part of that push and, and worked with teachers here extensively. I work with high school teachers through the Gilda Lehrman Institute all the time, uh, precisely because I want them to, to be aware of, uh, of abolition in this manner. And I think that is why I have um, sort of used my book as a resource for teachers also. Now, you argue from the outset that black resistance itself is what inspired the early abolitionist movement. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, uh, I begin uh, the book with a shipboard slave rebellion. And the reason I do that is to show that people of African descent resisted their enslavement right from the start. Uh, what had become very fashionable in the history of the African slave trade was to talk about African complicity uh, in the trade. And indeed, there were African kings and queens and merchants uh, who traded with Europeans and made a lot of money uh, and increased their political stature and power uh, through the slave trade. Uh, but in fact, Europeans were the ones who controlled the structure of the trade uh, and they were the ones who provided the initiative for the trade. So what I was trying to do by, by telling that story is to say that the first abolitionists are Africans who resisted enslavement. Uh, I was not interested in African elites who who were complicit with European traders. I was more interested in those Africans who were caught up in the slave trade and the ways in which they resisted. So if you look at the two dominant ways in which black people resisted slavery in the United States, um, you know, running away and forming maroon slave communities, that begins in the West Coast of Africa. From the moment uh, slave trading begins in the 16th century by the Portuguese. So, that is indeed a theme in the book. This is an easy question, I think, but uh, I think we, we certainly should touch on it. Why is it so critically important to focus on resistance and agency when dealing with this subject matter? I think it's really important to look at Black resistance, which just does not just mean running away in rebellions. As I spoke earlier in my talk with the teachers, it includes uh, using the law you know, freedom suits, fighting for your freedom. You know, most U.S. history teachers teach the Dred Scott case as an incident leading to the Civil War and as an infamous decision, but they don't explore the background to the Dred Scott case. You know, how come Dred Scott, a slave, is suing for his freedom, right? This, this happens uh, continuously. Uh, so I think it's really important for us to develop a capacious understanding of slave resistance in the first place. Sometimes we are enamored by violence, right? Yeah. We are enamored by rebellions and, and things like that. Uh, but actually, resistance came in many shapes and forms. Um, it could be those iconic slave rebellions like Nat Turner's Rebellion, but it could also be petitioning and suing and buying your freedom and a whole host of ways. Um, it could be Frederick Douglass joining the abolition movement, becoming one of its leaders, and, and through the lecture circuit, influence, influencing public opinion. So, you know, there's a range of actions that Black people took that counts in my eyes as resistance. Um, and this image that somehow African-Americans didn't resist slavery until they actually, you know, took up arms is also simplistic. You know, we need to think about the ways in which Black people resisted slavery. They're even signing petitions to Congress, 
so that southern slaveholders are saying, why should we even look at abolitionist petitions? They're signed by women and blacks. They're not even citizens of our country. But, but this is an important political impact, right, on the national debate over slavery. So it was very important for me to, to sort of reimagine slave resistance too. Um, you know, there are a lot of historians who say, oh, resistance, agency, you know, those are sort of um, politically correct ways of, of looking at Black history. And, you know, uh, the one thing that I do is when I make an argument, I make sure that I have a lot of evidence to support it. So it's not some sort of theoretical construct I run around either propagating or dismantling. Uh, I am very, and that's how I think our teachers, especially today, when they're faced with all kinds of restrictions on what they can teach and how they can teach, um, it's really important for them not to make historically based claims. Um, you know, I'm enough of an old fashioned historian to think that, you know, you're entitled to your opinion, but you're not entitled to your facts. Uh, and you need to be able to do that. So, so this image of resistance that I got is something that emerges from the abolitionist archives and abolitionists are documenting this um, as a response to slaveholders who are at this point developing an elaborate pro-slavery ideology saying, you know, enslaved people are happy, they're part of our family, we are so benevolent, we feed them, we clothe them, we take care of them. There was this image of Southern slavery as being a very paternalistic institution, and that when slaves rebelled or ran away, it was because of abolitionist instigation. And I'm arguing that it's just the opposite. It's right. these runaway slaves that are inspiring abolitionist tactics and discourse and pushing it towards a more radical direction. I was struck by the rhetoric of uh, Caesar Sartre and the writer calling himself a son of Africa, who deftly wove their abolitionist messages in with uh, the rhetoric of the American Revolution. Can you talk about how black people used the revolution to further their own goals? Yes, you know, it's become fashionable now to see the American Revolution as a defense of slavery, which I think is going to the other extreme from those very simplistic myths about the American Revolution. Uh, the American Revolution, like every other big event in US history was a contested one. Yes, there were some Southern slaveholders who uh, were clearly uh, influenced by things like the Somerset decision or by African-Americans using revolutionary ideas to attack slavery. Um, even in South Carolina, they're marching and saying, give us liberty, right? Uh, in those very deep South slave states. So there were clearly slaveholders who want to use the revolution to secure their rights to property in slaves. Uh, but African-Americans uh, fought uh, in the revolution on both sides to gain their liberty. Uh, in the Northern states, in fact, uh, more African-Americans fought in the Continental Army than they did for the British. In the Southern states, where most of the patriots were slavers, uh, you did have uh, more uh, enslaved people fighting with the British. So they were using every opportunity to win their freedom. But to me, what was interesting in terms of understanding the history of abolition is to see the way in which African-Americans like Caesar Sartre and others are deploying revolutionary ideas uh, to literally challenge slavery ideologically. And this is something I really wanted to make clear in my book is that black people are not just like voting with their feet all the time or just simply being the activists on the ground or simply taking up a gun to fight. Mm -hmm. They're also thinkers of the movement, right? Uh, they use ideas, they publish a lot 
uh, in newspapers and other things. I mean, Phyllis Wheatley's famous letter where she rebukes um, American slaveholders and says, you know, you think that people fighting for their own liberty would be aware that we would be interested in the same idea, right? Yeah. Uh, so they're, they're really good at that. Or you look at Lemuel Haynes, the black minister who um, rebukes uh, uh, the Patriots, but himself had fought in the Continental Army and was very much identified with the Continental cause. Or James Forden, who was just a, you know, a boy uh, and who refused to renounce the American cause uh, because they had certain ideological arg arguments too. Uh, and they saw how natural rights philosophy could in fact further their cause. Um, and in this sense, I guess my take is a little different from those who say the American Revolution was all about freedom or those who say the American Revolution was all about slavery, because it was neither. Um, you know, it was a contested idea and Black people were developing their own ideas on how to use revolutionary ideas to attack slavery, uh, something that, of course, even uh, white abolitionists uh, did uh, and would end up doing um, right up to the Civil War. Now, it's my guess that most high school history teachers simplify their examination of abolition to just the two examples of Garrison and Douglas. Um, it may be understandable how that happened, but there are many other voices that should be heard. And you just mentioned uh, Wheatley, Haynes and, and Fortin. And I know this is an absurd question for someone who wrote a 600 page book, which you had to chop down. Uh, <laughs> but if you were if you were going to recommend to to a high school teacher, three, let's say, uh, other abolitionist writers that that their that their students should be exposed to, uh, who would you pick and why? Okay, that's a that's a great question. The reason why I think we should not just talk about I, I think we should talk about Garrison and Douglas, because clearly they're leaders of the movement, they're important. But maybe the teachers can teach these figures as leaders of a broader radical social movement. Mm -hmm. The moment you get out of that kind of individualistic moral reformers, because most textbooks, and this has been sort of written in stone for decades, you know, you teach the second great awakening and then from the second great awakening, you go to the abolition movement. But actually abolitionists were very radical and they were very critical actually of some of these religious figures involved in the second great awakening. People like Lyman Beecher, who was a colonizationist. In fact, abolition grows as a reaction to them, right? And Garrison is pretty radical in his religious ideas. So I think instead of like using that worn out narrative because it's been there all the time, maybe teachers can think about discussing abolition as a radical social movement, the way they teach the civil rights movement, for instance. You know, yes, Martin Luther King is really important, but you talk about other activists and you talk about how this movement, you know, has this impact on politics with the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. I think we can do the same with the abolition movement. Mm -hmm. There are one or two figures that I think we should know more about. And two of my favorites are uh, James W.C. Pennington, who was a fugitive slave who ran away from slave in the 1820s, uh, sat in Yale divinity classes, self-taught clergyman. His ideas are not known at all, though he wrote one of the first responses, intellectual, theoretical responses uh, to the pseudoscience of race. And I talk a lot about him in my book. I have a section on Black abolitionism where I look at intellect, institutions, activism. You know, these people are fighting against Jim Crow. They're talking about ideas that that would later be adopted by civil rights activists who correctly call themselves uh, the new abolitionists, right? Um, and so I think uh, we should look at Pennington 
Uh, I started writing about Pennington a lot because I was fascinated by his ideas and his books. He published a lot. He was a fugitive slave who also published his narrative like Douglas. He was a celebrity in Europe and England because he attended all the world anti-slavery and peace conferences. Uh, he's the first African-American to be uh, given an honorary doctorate by the University of Heidelberg in 1849. Right. Uh, and now there's a movement for Yale to give him an honorary doctorate. So so he is one person I would really um, a push for more recognition. Mm -hmm. In 2011, when the University of Heidelberg was celebrating its 625th anniversary, it endowed a fellowship named after Pennington. And they asked me to do the inaugural lecture. Uh, and I remember President Obama sent mes a message uh, saying, you know, Pennington is a lot like me. He came out of nowhere and he achieved. <laughs> so much. So it was a big event. And uh, so I want people to know more about Pennington, his ideas and his words. I would also like people to know more about um, Francis Ellen Watkins Harper. You know, when we think of the rise of the women's rights movement from abolition, we think of Lucretia Mott, who was there, the founding of the American Anti-Slavery Society and at Seneca Falls and was a kind of a mentor to Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Uh, we think of Susan B. Anthony and others. We don't think of Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, who is this black abolitionist feminist who's mainly an abolitionist before the war, but then get involved, gets involved in the suffrage movement uh, and is really prominent, uh, a prominent black writer. Uh, not just her novels that literary scholars have looked at. I looked at her speeches, you know, her non-fictional writing. She's an amazing political thinker. Um, she famously said, you white women talk of rights, I speak of wrongs. So she had an intersectional approach to feminism wow. long before, um, you know, people today who talk about those things. Um, so I wish people would know more about Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, whose career spanned from abolition to suffrage and temperance into the 20th century. Now, since you brought up, uh, you brought her up, uh, women you describe generally as the abolitionist foot soldiers. Yeah. They, they do t seem to get short shrift in the telling of, of the history of the abolitionist movement. Yeah. Um, can you just uh, talk a little bit about, you know, how how important a role they played, even if they weren't always the ones in the front? Yes, you know, women are really central to the abolition movement. And you can see this right from the 18th century, from Phyllis Wheatley's writings, but also women in Britain who become very involved in the abolition movement. And this is a time when you had conventional gender roles and women didn't have the right to vote, were not in the public sphere. They were seen as private domestic creatures, mainly wives and mothers. Uh, and they are leading the charge, you know, in writing against slavery. Uh, and I find that fascinating, right? Uh, and that's why I think women's rights grows out of abolition because many people think they're stepping out of their sphere. Uh, certainly in the United States, it becomes really controversial when women like um, uh, a Frances Wright, who is seen as this radical feminist uh, and uh, Maria Stewart, the, black, the first American woman to speak in public, a black woman, um, they quickly shut down her career, public speaking career, but she still continues uh, to be active in abolition. Um, or uh, the Grimke sisters, the opposition they receive when they start speaking out in public. Um, so we really do need to look at these outstanding women who are leaders of the movement. And people forget that the abolition movement splits over controversies, not just over politics and religion, but also women's rights, 
right? Uh, when Abby Kelly Foster is elected to the business committee of the American Anti-Slavery Society, some of the more conservative, uh, relatively conservative, because they were radical compared to mainstream Americans, uh, mainly clergymen say, you know, we don't want women to take leadership roles and we don't want promiscuous um, societies that include blacks and whites, men and women. Blacks and white men, maybe not the women. That's like a bit too much. Uh, and they feel that abolition is already an unpopular cause. Why latch on another cause that is unpopular? And that's women's rights. Um, so I think it's really important to look at women's rights, the controversy over it in the abolition movement, but also the emergence of the first women's rights movement out of abolition, uh, which involved people uh, like Lucy Stone, uh, like Abby Kelly Foster, who are present at the National uh, Women's Rights Convention in Worcester in 1850. It's such a big convention that expire, inspires feminists in, in Britain, in Europe. Um, and then they have these national conventions uh, throughout uh, um, pretty much nearly every year and state conventions and local conventions for women's rights uh, right up to the Civil War. So they kind of lay the groundwork for suffrage. And this is when Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton emerge. Uh, we always think of 1848, the Seneca Falls Convention as the iconic founding moment. But in fact, abolitionist women had long been fighting for, for women's rights within the abolition movement. And we know that abolitionist women are leading petition drives for the right to vote, for property rights, for rights over their children, for rights over their own wages, for legal personhood, you know, long before. Um, so I think we need to think about the women's rights movement also in this as, as, as a sort of as a child of the abolition movement and not simply it's sort of popping up on its own during the Seneca Falls movement. And, and at Seneca Falls, of course, many of the women who are involved there uh, and of course, the only man there, Frederick Douglass and Lucretia Mott's husband, James Mott, um, you know, the only black man there, I should say, Frederick Douglass, um, you know, they're all abolitionists and they kind of support the cause. So we, we need to sort of refigure that too a little bit. Now, despite some of the abolitionists that you mentioned earlier having very socially progressive or just progressive viewpoints and being on the right side uh, of history, they also there were plenty of them that were riddled with toxic racist views from the, those who were supportive of colonization or those who would have supported immediate uh, immediate end to slavery, but not equal rights for for black people. How do you navigate with students or, or you know, and, and suggest uh, teachers do the same? The shades of gray. I mean, students want to believe you know, in good and bad and black and white and a binary understanding of history. So those people who supported colonization or were against racial equality were not abolitionists. They were just anti-slavery in sentiment, right? An abolitionist activist is somebody who believes programmatically in the immediate end to slavery, no compensation to enslavers. If there's any compensation, it should go to the enslaved uh, and who believe in black equality. Because remember, they're not just fighting against Southern slavery. As I argue in my book, they're fighting against Jim Crow in the North. They are fighting for equal school rights for black people in the North. Uh, they are fighting for the right to vote for black people in the North. So, you know, we, we really don't know what the abolition movement is about uh, because we confuse them with colonizationists. In fact, colonizationists, uh, abolitionists oppose colonization. Right. Garrison's famous 
thoughts on American colonization and this opposition to the colonization movement they get from black people. Because black people are the first to say, hey, <laughs> we watered this country with our blood, sweat and tears. We are not going anywhere. You know, uh, we are just as much American citizens and just as much entitled to citizenship rights. There are some African-Americans who uh, propose immigration, but they're against colonization, which is a white project to get rid of black people and which constantly abuses black people as unworthy as, as you know, all the racist tropes about blacks. Uh, many colonizationists are slaveholders from the upper South states because after the revolution, they have these huge free black populations that creates a problem because in their mind, all blacks should be slaves, all whites should be free, the binary. Uh, and so they want to get rid of free black people because they're like this anomalous population. What do you do? Are they free? Are they slave? Do they have rights? Do they not have rights? Um, and so many uh, border state slaveholders uh, dominate the American colonization society. Its president is Henry Clay, a slaveholding senator from Kentucky. So abolitionists are very much against that. Uh, does that mean that there weren't white abolitionists who could be racially paternalistic at times? Um, no, it doesn't. There were, in fact, some who were kind of romantic racialists. Uh, the most you know, obvious example is Harriet Beecher Stowe, but then she was not an abolitionist when she wrote that. She was a colonizationist. She ends her book with this dream of going to Liberia, right? Um, so she's a colonizationist and her father had opposed abolitionists. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really important for us to understand you know, who's anti-slavery in sentiment, who's an abolitionist belonging to that radical social movement, who's a colonizationist who may be a slaveholder too, who just wants to get rid of free black people. Uh, it's because people don't know the history that they just run with assumptions, right? Um, and to me, what was interesting about the abolition movement is that it creates the space where blacks and whites talk to each other. There's no other space in antebellum America where that happens, not even the churches where black people are confined to so-called quote, Negro pews. That's why black people create their own separate churches. Uh, there is no, it's completely against the same, the interracialism of abolition is completely against the social mores of antebellum United States. And that's why uh, I think it's important to make those distinctions. And that's why I spent a lot of time in the book talking about the debate between abolitionists and colonizationists. Yeah. Um, okay. And I stepped in that one, but uh, <laughs> I in in my head I was thinking I just read uh, Graham Hodge's uh, David Ruggles book, and I was thinking a little bit of like Lewis Tappan, who uh, when I forgot what exactly what it was, but something didn't go, you know, expectations didn't go his way, and he lashed out with a fairly racist comment. People are captives of their time to some extent, uh, e even if yeah. But I think if you look at abolitionists. Um... To me, it's amazing how much they rise above their times, you know, uh, and how they are uh, challenging racist ideas, whether it's coming from Jefferson or from some ordinary newspaper writer who's lampooning and making fun of black people. Mm -hmm. uh, you can always get statements from white abolitionists that are, you know, like if you look at the uh, even like Tappan is is interesting because he has a, a really good working relationship with Pennington. Right. Mm -hmm. With the Amistad Committee, etc. The evangelical abolitionists are interesting, but, you know, they, they are, you're right, you know, sometimes they'll say something like they will 
uh, question black people on whether it's the use of money or something else. And Tappan, you know, came, his father, his uh, brother was the Arthur Tappan, the businessman who basically bankrolled the abolition movement. So they were very, um, <laughs> they were always, uh, you know, counting the money. Where is it going and is it being used properly? Um, even the Garrison Douglas break, I think, which is always told in simplistic racial terms, can actually be told in ideological terms because they have a serious ideological disagreement. But because they're so close and because they work together, that they end up hitting each other both below the belt. With uh, Douglas saying that you know uh, that 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 Garrison is being a racist, and and Garrison uh, you know uh, accusing Douglas of infidelity to his wife with with white women. So it becomes like hitting each other below the belt, right? Uh, and you can take that and say, oh, this is all about race. But actually, when they come down to that, it's like virtually at the end of their split. But the entire debate has been all about the constitution and politics. Um, but it's like a personal family disagreement, virtually. Uh, I think David Blight says this well when he says, you know, they had kind of a mentor-mentee, virtually father-son kind of relationship. And then when they break apart, it's not pretty. Everyone's airing dirty laundry kind of thing. What was remarkable to me now that I've written this book on the Civil War and Reconstruction is that when Garrison dies, uh, Douglas gives one of the best eulogies on him. Yeah. So we really need to, you know, I think um, I, I'm very, very uh, hesitant to buy into the black and white binary, as you put it. Yeah. Uh, life and things are much more complicated. I think the people who see everything in simplistic racial terms uh, tend to be people who want to sow racial divisions. Mm. It tends to be slaveholders who play the race card all the time, opponents of any change like Douglas. Stephen Douglas, if you look at the Douglas-Lincoln debates, constantly playing the race card. Uh, and abolitionists are trying to overcome that a little bit and talk about our common humanity in terms of human rights. Uh, and, you know, I, I got that immediately. So I went against the grain. Because since the 60s and 70s, it was all like, oh, white abolitionists are racist. <laughs> I'm like, nah, you haven't read the archives. Uh, and you do, and I don't trust those people who said those things. I look at what African Americans are saying. You know, what is Douglas saying at that time? What is Richard Allen saying about George Washington? I don't. I'm not interested in your view of the founders. I'm a historian, so I'm more interested in what this black abolitionist in his eulogy of George Washington is saying. Hmm. Now, you just addressed an answer to this question potentially, but I'll, I'll, I'm still going to throw it at you. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is the second to last question. I'm thinking there will be a lot of possible answers to it. So I'm curious what will jump out for you. During the course of your many years of research on this subject matter, what did you learn that debunked supposed truths about slavery or abolition? Oh, those are good questions. Um, in terms of slavery, you know, when I uh, went to graduate school, the dominant interpretation was that of Eugene Genovese, you know, and his book, Roll Jordan Row, uh, and his use of paternalism. Not that slavery was a kind and benevolent institution, but he had this weird view that somehow slavery was better than wage labor. He bought into slaveholders' argument. And he called himself, quote, a Marxist. And I put it in, in, in scare quotes because Marx himself is very anti-slavery and and kind of admires abolitionists. You know, we now now that his German writings have been translated, he actually names them. He names Wendell Phillips and Garrison and says, you know, I really admire these men. So the left, you know, that 
bought into Genovese's argument that slavery was, yes, it was really awful and bad, but Black people accommodated to it. It was generally a paternalistic institution in the sense uh, that slaveholders did take care of the minimum needs of enslaved people um, and, and, and things. They really bought into what slaveholders were propagating as propaganda as a description of historical reality. That was the dominant vision of slavery still being taught when I went to graduate school in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, of course, now that has been overturned. And so that I, I got that immediately because I study abolitionists. So I studied what fugitive slaves are saying about slavery. This is not a benevolent institution. <laughs> their masters are torturing them, whipping them, renting their uh, families apart. Uh, the idea that somehow slavery was pre-capitalist or anti-capitalist. Increasingly, historians it's very much part of the capitalist world. Uh, you know, slavery, colonialism, these things are not sideshows of Western history. They're part of the main show when it comes to the economic history of capitalism. So that was something that I, before even the historians of slavery and capitalism were talking about it, I already got that from African-Americans who are saying that as Pennington famously put it, slavery is the chattel principle, the reducing of human beings to property and making money off them, right? It's the capitalist logic. Mm -hmm. uh, before historians got to this, right? Um, and uh, the other thing that I think about abolition, I mean, I bought into that idea because I, you know, even the, the, the most well-known synthesis on abolition published by James Stewart was that abolition rose out of the second great awakening, you know, moral movements and all these other reform movements, they're all reform movements, right? It's like the American Tract Society, American Bible Society, the American Anti-Slavery Society. And I'm like, wait a minute, the Bible Tract Society hated the abolitionists. The huge controversies going on. So what is this? So people like Bertram White Brown, in particular, a Southern historian, uh, who some of whose views on slavery and, and abolition, uh, you know, I shouldn't say anything of the dead, but are rather strange. Uh, so I um, and I, I started looking at abolition, and then I realized, you know, which of the historians of abolition I can trust, who've done the archives, or which are the ones that are still recycling these old generalities about abolition. And I felt there was a real gap in the historiography that I really needed. And the reason why the big book is relatively big, though I hear it's readable, uh, is because it I needed to do that. I needed to make that popular intervention, but also the academic intervention that, yeah. that historians. And I'm happy to say that now there are like tons of books that have come out on abolition that that have that sensibility uh most of which that i've loved so i'm happy it has <laughs> had that impact on the scholarship before you go can you tell us a little about your forthcoming book yeah so i have just completed a, a book on um reconstruction where again, I look at reconstruction, not just as that small period immediately after the civil war that teachers find difficult to teach because it's so, it's so confusing. And, you know, a, you know, people who teach the first half of the US survey don't know whether they should add that. People who do the second half of this US survey just don't want to do deal too much with the civil war and reconstruction and jump straight into the Gilded Age. So, I really thought it was really important as a historian in the long 19th century to do this book. And my advisor, of course, had written the Bible on Reconstruction. But in my book, I reimagined Reconstruction as this, this long period. And the book is called The Rise and Fall of the Second American Republic. And it goes from 1860 to 1900. So it looks at the war and wartime Reconstruction 
and it looks at the ways in which um, the problems are being tackled uh, immediately after defeat of the South, how the South refuses to accept defeat and continues to fight and how reconstruction and all the gains that are made uh, with exactly the abolitionist goals of establishing black citizenship, equal black citizenship uh, with the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments is undone uh, and the rise of Jim Crow and American empire. Uh, I, I include things that are not normally included in the history of reconstruction like the conquest of the West um, and Native American history or the women's movement, the suffrage movement, and the disputes among suffragists uh, over the Reconstruction Amendments. But I still see the 19th Amendment um, as a legacy of Reconstruction's progressive constitutionalism. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I've, I've written a whole new history of Reconstruction, uh, and hopefully that'll be out next year. Uh, a, a much smaller book because it's coming out from a commercial press. So they're very good at, at, at not letting me wax <laughs> eloquent in my book. So, um, you know, uh, hopefully that'll be out next year, ready for teachers to use. Fantastic. I look forward to it. And I thank you so much for your generosity of time and, and knowledge. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Bob. Mm -hmm.